0: For some, the end of daylight saving time doesn't require a lot of attention. Their smartphone or computer automatically rolls back the time. But for others, it requires a manual rewind. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're being mindful of the time, the time kept on wrists and the time kept in pockets, although that's much less common in today's digital age. Our guest is Nicholas Manousis. He's president of the Horological Society of New York and co-founder of Firehouse Horology. Nicholas, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. What is horology?
1: Horology is the study of time and timekeepers. It's, uh, it's a very broad field. It's kind of like um, saying you are uh, an athlete. You know, you could, you could, it can could mean lots of different things, and the same thing goes, goes for horology. It's, a, uh, it's something that's fascinated me my entire life, and I'm really lucky to be able to kind of pursue it full-time
0: now. What fascinates you about time, timekeeping?
1: times the common denominator. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are in the world, it's uh, something that we all have in common, and that's kind of what what attracts me to it. You know, it's that's kind of the main aspect to it, but there's lots of other side areas that you can get into with horology that I think are super, super interesting. Like what? It's, uh, you know, mechanical watches uh, in particular are very technical. There's an engineering challenge associated with them. And uh, that engineering challenge is something that kind of uh, piques my interest uh, all the time. I have a background in engineering, uh, like a computer engineering background. Uh, But beyond the engineering side, there's the aesthetic side of of mechanical watches and clocks. Uh, There's the historical side of them. Uh, There's the uh, uh, romantic side of them. There's the uh, luxurious side of them. So there's just all these different uh, aspects to
0: consider. You yourself are a watchmaker.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I say that with some trepidation because the word watchmaker in the English language is, I think, not very accurate because most watchmakers don't make watches. Most watchmakers repair watches, diagnose watches, fix watches. It's kind of like saying the metaphor I always like to, to give is uh, if you bring your car in to get serviced, uh, an oil change, maybe something is not quite right the person who services your car, you don't refer to them as a car maker. You refer to them as a mechanic mm-hmm. or a repair person or, or something else, right? And it's this kind of unfortunate word uh, where if, if you tell someone you're a watchmaker, they think, oh, you make watches. And 99% of the time, that's not true. Uh, and the other kind of example I like to give uh, related to this is uh, if you're uh, in a French-speaking country and uh, someone asks you what you do and you say... Um, I'm a I'm a watchmaker. You would say "Je suis un horloger." I am a horologist. Hmm. So they use a different word for it uh, in French, and I think the the word "horologist" kind of makes uh, makes sense for, because it's a, if you say you're a horologist, it, it kind of gives a, a broader picture of what you could be doing. You could be repairing watches, you could be designing watches, you could be uh, 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 repairing or designing clocks. It gives just a, a broader picture than saying watchmaker because it's uh, today there are very few people in the world who actually make an entire watch themselves. And the same thing, if you go back through history, there's just been a handful of people that have actually been able to do that. It's always been this uh, this this craft that's split up into multiple disciplines. So you have someone whose who's specialty, whose job it is to make a dial or a case or a gear or hands, and that's all they do. And then at the end of the day, uh, all of those parts come together and uh, you know come into a
0: together into a complete watch or clock. That said, what's your specialty?
1: Uh, my specialty is a very particular part of uh, a mechanical watch called the hairspring. Uh, the hairspring is a. Um, I guess I can give a, another metaphor uh, for, for it. Think about a, how a regular mechanical clock works. You have a pendulum that swings back and forth. Uh, the pendulum has some restoring force that's that keeps it swinging. And uh, what's that restoring force? It's, it's it's gravity. It's the force of the weight uh, uh, that's that's keeping the clock running. But in a mechanical watch, uh, you don't have the luxury of gravity because you're always moving your wrist around. Uh, so a hairspring is a tiny, tiny spring that keeps a balance wheel oscillating and it keeps it swinging back and forth uh, from one direction to the, to the other. Uh, so that's, that's really my specialty. Um, I, uh, I have a, a company with a, a friend of mine and we, we manufacture hairsprings here in New York city. Uh, it's kind of a specialty part for mechanical watches that not a lot of uh, uh, other brands or companies have the capability to produce themselves, uh, so we manufacture it and sell it to uh, to other other companies around the world that that need that that part.
0: What tool could you not live without as a horologist? Uh, the number one tool
1: I would say is my loop, loop. Or it's kind of there's all these watchmaking terms that uh, have other words in common English, magnifying glass uh, that you you wear over your eye. And it just always gives me a, a really quick and easy way to look uh, really up close at the movements, diagnose it, see if something's wrong. Uh, when I'm working during the day, I wear eyeglasses, so I usually have the loop kind of connected up here to my eyeglasses, and I can just flip it down and take a quick look. I don't have to have a microscope uh, always uh, right by me, and that's tool number one. Tool number two is uh, uh, would be my, my tweezers, uh, so I use my tweezers to... Uh, to touch the movements uh, because you don't ever want to touch mechanical movements with your bare hands. You'll get oils on them. Uh, So I use my tweezers, uh, my loop, and then my screwdrivers to take things apart.
0: I would think that if you were to tell someone that you're a horologist at a cocktail party here in New York City, they're going to think you're in the medical field. Am I right?
1: Um, Yeah, they'll think. I'm in the medical field. They'll think it means something else that's kind of rude. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's its a tricky thing because horologist is or horology and horologist are not really well-known words in the English language. Uh, and then it kind of goes back to what I was saying. I, I sometimes feel uh, n- maybe it's not quite correct to say I'm a watchmaker because mm-hmm. I don't make 100% of, of a watch. Uh, you think about... Like the big, I mean, this goes even further, even to the really big watch brands that are out there right now. And there's really only, I would say with, with 100% confidence, I would say there's only, only two that really make 100% of everything that goes on your wrist.
0: Which two are they?
1: I'm sure you can guess number one. Rolex. Yes. And there's uh, there's a second company that's not in Switzerland, but they're a very big watch company worldwide, Maybe you'd be
0: able to guess it, I want to say swatch
1: swatch mm, swatch kind of technically meets those criteria from some other more complicated mm-hmm. reasons, but it's Seiko in Japan, oh okay, yeah. yeah
0: what watch are you wearing? you're wearing a watch today uh this
1: watch is a prototype test watch um it's uh it's not particularly fancy, but I use it to test some of uh some of the parts that that I make uh so it's not. It's not a fancy Rolex or protect Philippe or anything, but, uh, it means a lot to me because this is what I work on all day, every day and testing parts and making new designs and, uh, seeing how things perform. So this is, uh, you know, I wear it because wearing it is a test. So I see how it performs. I see the, how it keeps time, uh, throughout, uh, different changes in weather we're, you know, we're moving into, into winter now. Uh, if, if I drop it, I'm actually, I'm not. If I drop it, I'm actually kind of happy because I want to see how it performed with a little bit of a a shock. Um, So it's just everyday normal wear and tear. It's just seeing how it it works. It's my my test watch. I brought a couple other watches, too, that are a little bit more interesting. uh, Yeah? But uh, they're quite different. What do you have? Quite different in some other ways. Let's see. So we're on the radio. So you can't see this in person, but... uh,
0: this is a pocket watch, right, a, with a this chain. Is,
1: this is a pocket watch, uh, and George will pass it to you. This is a, uh, a Cordebert watch. It's a pocket watch from the late 19th century. Wow. And it is a digital mechanical watch. A digital mechanical watch. Explain. Uh, so here, I'm going to
0: pass it to George. Yeah, here we go. You got it. Well, this is a
1: nice watch. This is a hefty watch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's what uh, mechanical watches used to be. Digital mechanical. So I, I really like this because it kind of goes back to the amusing aesthetic part of mechanical watches. Uh, you think about what's a digital watch today. It's an Apple watch, right? Right. Uh, this is a digital watch from the 1800s. Uh, it's, there is no electricity. Electricity it was not invented at this time. Uh, this is uh, a watch that shows you the time with digits. So it doesn't have hands. It doesn't have a dial. It has digits, and it has uh, one uh, cutout section that shows the hours, and then mm-hmm. a section below it that says the minutes. Uh, and it uh, advances those uh, those indicators. Uh, you'll see it there if you watch the seconds tick around. Every minute, it will jump to uh, to the next minute. And this was kind of a a type of watch that was uh, very much in fashion for a, a certain. Period of time, uh, we see lots of examples of digital pocket watches and digital even wrist watches, but they just kind of fell out of fashion. And now, uh, everything we see is a you know traditional watch with a dial with sure. uh, you know twelve twelve hours on it.
0: Do they still make pocket watches? Very
1: very few. Some some very special specialty companies. It's just the the demand is not there anymore. It's not a fashionable thing to wear. Uh, even from a collecting sides, uh, they don't really. Uh, appreciate a lot so it's not like a lot of people like to collect watches uh because they appreciate and uh you can kind of make it an investment if you do it the right way uh, pocket watches aren't the case but I, I love pocket watches because they represent uh tremendous uh technical uh value it's it's kind of the period of watchmaking where there is the most amount of uh technical development going on and you can get a pocket watch today that is tremendously technically advanced compared to uh, you know a popular Rolex or Patek. Uh, I was
0: going to ask you what are your favorite timepieces. So a pocket watch would be
1: up there. Pocket watches would definitely be up there. Um, I would say uh, vintage American pocket watches uh, are my favorite because I think that they um, they represent a time in um, our country's history that is largely forgotten now. Uh, and that's a time when the American watchmaking industry was really at the top. And we don't really consider that. We don't really think about that anymore. We, you know, the Swiss have done a very good job at marketing. Uh, and so they market their watches as kind of the gold standard, which they are today. But they were not always the gold standard. Uh, the industry has shifted from different countries uh, across oceans. Uh, it started uh, with the British. they were They were the innovators. They were the inventors. Uh, and then the Americans uh, kind of took took the crown when the Americans figured out how to mass-produce mechanical watches. Uh, so the British were doing it at a very small scale. And it's kind of like uh, the invention of the car and the assembly line and, and Henry Ford and the Model T. The Americans figured out the same thing. They, ha- they figured out how to make mechanical watches on an assembly line. And they were able to just mass-produce uh, uh, tons and tons of, of watches, and and so I would say that's vintage American mechanical watches really are, are my favorite. And I brought another another example to show you. This is an Elgin. This is a, a, a vintage uh, American watch that uh, looks
0: like a watch that the rabbit in the uh, Alice in Wonderland story would be carrying. Yes, yes,
1: <laughs> maybe someone swinging it back and forth yes. to try and hypnotize you. Yeah, this is this is a great watch. I wonder if we can hear the uh, the ticking. I'm winding it now. It just it represents a, a time in the American uh, watch industry which is just doesn't really exist mm-hmm. a- anymore. And it's uh, maybe at some point we can get, get back to this. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, once we once we start really uh, manufacturing uh, some mechanical watches here again. But uh, well, we're taking it slowly. You know, we're we're doing it piece by piece. So I wow. just took the back off and then it's
0: beautiful it's, on the inside. It's, actually, it's, all those it's mechanics absolutely beautiful.
1: Maybe it's. I hear you know, it. Maybe you
0: could just barely hear the ticking. So I'm going to pass this over to, to George as well. So let me ask you, while I grab this watch, what do you think the future holds for the watch industry in our digital world? In a world where many people turn to their smartphones to tell what time it is,
1: I am. I'm happy anytime uh, someone wears a watch, and. Uh, there's been kind of a whole generation of people that haven't worn watches because of smartphones, but now we're kind of seeing a shift in that where people are wearing uh, smart watches, and I view that as an opportunity. I kind of try and find the positive sides of everything. I, th- I think it's a great opportunity because it is exposing a lot of people to wearing a wristwatch that maybe never wore one before. Uh, maybe they'll start with a, a smartwatch, an Apple watch, or any of the competitors, uh, and maybe... You know they'll get a new job, they'll get a promotion, and they'll say, "Hey, let me treat myself and, and upgrade and get something a little bit nicer, maybe something mechanical, something that will last a while." Uh, and then they'll 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 go out and splurge and, and get that Rolex or get that Patek, and I think that's pretty cool uh, because the thing with smartwatches, there's kind, of, I mean, it goes with any type of digital device, any iPhone, any um, computer, laptop you get, they're built with planned obsolescence, so. They're 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 planning that in the next two or three years you're going to want to upgrade and get the new the new Apple Watch the new iPhone I know I I can't wait for the new iPhone mm-hmm. 10 coming out I think it's pretty cool uh, but mechanical watches aren't aren't the same uh, I mean you're holding in your hand uh, two watches that are each over a hundred years old uh, they w- were. They were made with care, they were made to last, mm-hmm. and they still tell the they still tell the correct time. they still do their job they don 't need any software updates they don 't need to be charged overnight uh, they uh, if if it breaks uh, you wouldn 't just throw it away and go get a new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would bring it to someone who can fix it for you and I think that uh, this is this is something that I learned from a friend of mine, uh, Michael Friedman, who's the historian at uh, Audemars Piguet. He kind of he kind of lays this out in a, a, a lecture that he gives, and I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, today we're surrounded by so much of this planned obsolescence, this digital everything, computers everywhere. Um, I think it's nice to have something that kind of brings us back to a. Uh, uh, a slower time, uh, sure. Uh, something that gives you a little bit, uh, of, uh, it's that je ne sais quoi, right? You can't really pin it down. It's the same, you know what? It's the same thing with vinyl records. Mm-hmm. Like why are, why are vinyl records so popular today? And yeah. they're actually really coming back. People are building new vinyl pressing plants. Yeah. I think it's, it's kind of a similar type of reason. You, we want to reconnect with something that uh, is not just disposable.
0: Sure. I mean, no question about that. As I hold this pocket watch in my hand, I'm reminded of my great-grandfather who always had a pocket watch in his pocket. And it Makes me want to go back to those days. Maybe I want to try a pocket watch.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, like I said, right now they're really not fashionable, mm-hmm. but fashion comes and goes. Sure. And maybe in five, 10 years, it will be the fashion. And that's why I think it's such a good time to um, to collect pocket watches now. Everybody asks me, oh, you know, what, what watch should I get? What do you think the trend for next year will be? I have, I have no idea what the trend will be. I don't know what watch you should get um, it, it, unless it's a, a pocket watch. Uh, that's the, those are what really get, get me going.
0: Have you ever thought about starting your own brand?
1: Yes, of course. Everybody that's a watchmaker wants to start their own brand. It's kind of like the ultimate goal. But it's it's one of these things where um, you, can, you almost cannot ever do the whole thing yourself. So you've got to bring in parts from somewhere else. And uh, if you're in Switzerland, that's very easy because there are lots of specialty companies that maybe only make screws for a mechanical watch, only make gears, only make a case, only make a dial. So you can have an idea in your mind for a, a design that you want to do, a special part that you want to make yourself, and then you can go and purchase all these other parts from someone else and and bring them in and build your own watch. Uh, in the U.S., it's not not that easy. Um, what a lot of uh, companies do in the U.S. that want to start their own brand uh, is they they design the case, they design the dial, and then they purchase the movement from somewhere else, uh, usually Switzerland or from China or Japan, and they import it, and then put it into a watch. And then on the dial, they will say they'll write, uh, for example, Detroit, uh, and that just doesn't really work for me. It's 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 kind of it doesn't really f- feel authentic. Um, you, I want to. I'm really a fan of of manufacturing and making things, uh, figuring out how to make things yourself. So, yeah, until we get to that point here in the U.S. where we have more people actually uh, manufacturing things for mechanical watches, it, it doesn't really make sense right now.
0: How does one become a horologist? Is there study involved? Can you get a degree in horology?
1: You can get a degree in horology. And it's funny that you bring this up, because the other thing I do that's kind of part-time is I'm the president of the Horological Society of New York. And our previous lecture that we had just a couple weeks ago, uh, it was uh, with Dr. Rebecca Struthers, and she's from Birmingham uh, in the U.K., and she is the first person uh, in British history to ever receive a Ph.D. in horology. Hmm. Uh, there may be other people who have done it elsewhere in the world. I don't know, but uh, it's kind of a rare thing. Yes, you can study horology. You can get a degree in it. It's very rare. You probably have to create it yourself somehow. Um, it's kind of like it's kind of like saying, "Can you study to be an athlete, or or can you work to be an athlete?" You can. There's no formal qualification for it. Uh, and the same thing goes for horology. Uh, there are watchmaking schools that you can go to. Uh, they are spread out around the country. There's not as many as there used to be, for obvious reasons, but they still exist. Um, I went to the uh, Nicholas Hayek School in Miami, Florida, and, and studied watchmaking there. Uh, there's also a, uh, a well-known school in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, which is the, the Rolex School. And Patek Philippe has just opened uh, their school here in New York City at Rockefeller Center. When I say school, take that loosely. This is one classroom. My class, I had five classmates. Okay. It's very small. Um, it's not... It's not like a like university where we're sitting at right now.
0: What's the mission of the Horological Society of New York? Uh,
1: the mission is to promote horological education. Um, I guess that's kind of the, the quick and easy way that the, the, the formal mission that is in our Constitution is to advance the art and science of horology. Um, which uh, was a mission set forth uh, by our founders uh, back in 1866. Wow! So a long time ago. Yeah. And it still makes sense today. Uh, so really what we try and do is just to promote horology and horological education in, in every way. Uh, we do that with a, uh, with a, f- a few different uh, uh, things that we do. Uh, one is our lecture series. The lecture series is every month in Midtown, uh, and we've been doing that lecture series uh, for 151 years now. And then we also teach uh, watchmaking classes in the evenings uh, here in New York. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday evening, there are two-hour classes, and you get to sit with uh, with our instructors who are all professional watchmakers who have their day jobs as professional watchmakers. And then they, they help you take apart a mechanical watch and put it back together and show you really what makes a watch tick. Because everybody knows you can Hold a watch up to your ear and hear that ticking. Mm-hmm. But why does it tick? What is it that that is that is making that 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 tick? When yeah, you can kind of I hear get it a little tick yeah, now. You can yeah, hear I it put little bit the of,
0: watch up to the microphone. Yeah.
1: Um, so those classes are a lot of fun, and we have tons of people that that uh, always are. Um, we just got a big waiting list. We can never really uh, accommodate uh, all the people that want to take the classes. So we've uh, started taking the classes on the road, and we now teach them all over the country. We have these weekend courses and we travel around the country to, to teach. Um, and the ultimate goal, you know, I said my watchmaking uh, school was just six students. The ultimate goal is to force these watchmaking schools to expand and become bigger because we want to bring more students into the pipeline uh, because a lot of people right now, they don't. If you tell them, oh, you know, think about watchmaking. Consider it as a career. And they say, oh, I thought that was a dying art. Uh, it's not a dying art. It's it's a massive worldwide industry. Uh, if you think about the all the aspects of the industry, it's around a $50 billion a year industry. Uh, the sale uh, and service of mechanical watches and clocks, it's a very large industry. Uh, New York is the center of that industry in the United States and if you get a certification in watchmaking you're you're basically guaranteed a job anywhere mm-hmm. anywhere in the world it's a very very safe and secure um, uh uh field to work in and i always like to promote uh that aspect of it it's not something that's like an obscure dying art it's it's a vibrant uh, industry that that's, that's really enjoyable.
0: And young people, I would imagine, are interested, right? Because some people might think, hey, this is not something that's going to attract young people.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, unfortunately, that's kind of like the stereotype of it. You think about a watchmaker, you think about an old man with a lab coat, um, with a loop, and it's like, oh, that's not really what I want to do. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young guy or something, but um, that's not really the case. You're a young guy. I'm, I'm a, young, I'm a <laughs> relatively young guy. Yeah. Uh, we have in New York City. We have the Rolex, the Patek Philippe, and the Swatch Group service centers. So we have uh, a lot of watchmakers working here in the city, and I can tell you because I know a lot of them. A lot of them are young
0: guys. Uh, it's you know. A lot is of times, it more of a male-dominated field?
1: It is, but not as bad as other fields I've worked in. So my previous career uh, was in the software industry, the tech industry in San Francisco. And I can tell you that was 99.9 percent white men, which is kind of. I mean, it poses its own challenges. We know we hear about what's happening today, and um, so it's it's not always the best situation to to have an industry that's just dominated by one particular type of person. But watchmaking is not that bad. I would still say it's majority men, but. Uh, there are quite quite a few women uh, it's it's a diverse industry it's all over the world i kind of feel like i go to work it's not work it's just i i love it i get up and i i really look forward to doing what i'm going to do so it just it just kind of makes sense for me and
0: how big be- is your membership here in new york this, the Horological Society uh,
1: in New York, we have about 300 members wow. that are full-time members that show mm-hmm. up all the time. Uh, it's not like a private club or a private society. We uh, All of our meetings are free and open to the public. Uh, so any one meeting, we we may have a lot of people that we've never seen before because they're specifically interested in the person who's speaking that night. And the same thing goes for all of our classes. Uh, we do charge a small fee for the classes just because... We had we had so much interest that it was kind of an unmanageable waiting list, uh, but at the same time, if any, all of our classes are completely free to all uh, to any full time student, to any veteran, and to anyone who just can't afford it everyone's welcome to to take the classes uh, the the goal is not to make money the goal is to promote horology and get people interested in the subject and hopefully get some people interested enough where they can think hey I really like this I want to consider switching
0: my career or you know getting into this field you're also the co-founder of Firehouse Horology what's that
1: Yes uh so that is the company i was referring to earlier uh, about hairsprings uh-huh. uh, making hairsprings that's the company yes, okay yes that's the company firehouse is is really my day job that's where i spend the majority of my time we make uh hairsprings for mechanical watches but we make we make them with kind of a different manufacturing process than than people may be uh, familiar with uh it's it's uh, nanofabrication uh, so nanofabrication is making, th- we take that word apart. Fabrication is making things. Nano is making things at a very small scale. So we, we make things in a clean room, uh, the, the same way that the chips are made for your uh, smartphone and your computers. And we make uh, hairsprings from silicon, uh, which is a uh, an element on the periodic table. It's a metalloid. It's one of the most common elements uh, on, on Earth and in the universe. And... Uh, Silicon uh, is; it has some, some some certain properties that make it very suitable for use in a mechanical watch, uh, and kind of take it beyond what a traditional comparable metal part uh, could, could do. Um, so yeah, that's that's what Firehouse Horology
0: is. Where'd the name come from? Why Firehouse? Uh, we we started
1: our, our first office was a firehouse. Okay, on, on the Upper East Side. There you go. It was the firehouse that Andy Warhol used to live in and did some of his original paintings in. How cool. And he rented it from the city somehow. Uh, and it was then used as an arch uh, storage kind of warehouse type place. And we were originally going to set up shop there. We were there for a little bit. And then we saw this really good opportunity up uh, in Harlem at the uh, the City University of New York. Um, they, they opened this, this brand new uh, science building. And so we moved everything up there uh, because they have a, a world-class nanofabrication facility there and that's where we do our work and we just thought the name is catchy let's just keep the name
0: there you go why mess with a good thing right yes. i'm gonna hold this watch right back up here again to hear the tick <laughs> isn't there something very soothing calming about hearing the tick of a watch i certainly find it to be so
1: oh yeah absolutely uh, and specifically the tick of both of those watches that you're that you're uh, holding up because They are uh, running at a slower speed. They're older watches, so they're running at uh, what we describe as 18,000 vibrations per hour. Uh, If you were to hold my wristwatch or most modern wristwatches, will run at 28,800, which is a little bit faster. The faster you go, generally the more accurate a watch is. Uh, But I like that 18,000 tick specifically. I mean, you can kind of fall asleep to it. You can meditate to it. It's pretty loud in these big pocket watches compared to a small small wristwatch. But you know, I, I think the most famous place you hear it every Sunday night, sixty minutes. Yeah. The opening to sixty for minutes. For
0: sure. For sure. Yeah. So let me ask you this question, Nicholas: As a horologist, are you ever late?
1: Um, I, try, I really try not to. I was, uh, I was on time today. Yes, you were. You were early. <laughs> I was early. and I, I knew, yeah, I, I really try not to. And we always kind of make this joke with the Horological Society as well that uh, we, the doors open at 6, the lecture starts at 7. Somewhat serious, somewhat a joke. We really try and start the lectures exactly at 7 p.m., like no matter what.
0: And what's the website for people who may want to get involved and come out to one of your lectures or a class? It is
1: N Y org.
0: Nicholas, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. And we're out of time for this week's show. Thanks to Nicholas Manusis for sitting down with us. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante. Thank you so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.